Well, happy 2014, everybody. I feel like uh, winter came back this week with a vengeance. Uh, whenever I say that, or said that last night, I had all kinds of people from um, the you know smart mouth northerners come up and be like, oh, this is nothing. It's like this in August for us. And I'm like, yep, that's why you moved down here and we didn't move up there. So uh, wherever you are from at the Summit Church, we are glad that you're here. I hope that, glad, good to see you back from the break and hope you have, have great anticipations for um, a year where we grow in our love for God and in our effectiveness in ministry um, more than we they ever have. That's certainly my prayer for this, um, for this coming year. Um, we are beginning a new series today called God and the Rest of the Week. The big idea behind this series is that we tend to ghetto God into a couple of hours on the weekend, but God, you see, doesn't want to rule a couple of hours on the weekend while we sit in church. Um, God wants to be the ruler of every single dimension of our lives. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul would say it like this, and even when we eat and drink, we should do that to the glory of God. Um, Abraham Kuyper, who was the Dutch prime minister in the 1920s, um, used to famously say that there's not one square inch of the entire cosmos over which Jesus does not emphatically declare um, mine. Um, so, so we want to ask the question of, of what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of the rest of our week? Uh, you know, surely it's not coincidental that most of Jesus' parables that he told had a workplace context. You know, he didn't tell a lot of stories about people in church. He told stories about people that, throughout the life, you know, in, because that's where the Lordship of Jesus is most clearly seen. So we're going to take a, a, a look at a glimpse at three subjects that consume us outside of church. Um, family is one of those, work um, is a second one, and then time management, because we want to better understand how Jesus can be Lord of the rest of our week. Our first message is on leading a gospel-centered family. Now, let me deal with an objection that just popped into about 50% of your minds. Um, I'm in high school. I don't have kids yet. Um, my kids are out of the house already. I'm single. I, you know, I'm, it doesn't look like I'm going to have kids anytime soon. So I'll just assume there's nothing in this for me. Um, well, let me give you three things real quick just to consider. One, you might have a family in the future, and uh, it's really never too early to, to get started um, in thinking and preparing to be able to, um, to lead in this area. Um, so that's one reason. Secondly, um, all of you came out of a family, right? So today you might, you know, gain a better understanding of why you're so screwed up, uh, right? Um, and so maybe that'll help explain that a little bit. Um, um, but most importantly, uh, thirdly, raising up the next generation is not just an assignment that God gave to parents. Uh, what I'm going to show you today is that God gave it to the entire Christian community. Um, I've gone over this before, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a part of two families. One is a biological family. Um, these are people with whom you share a last name and uh, usually, you know, have a common DNA uh, strand or, or, or so. That's your biological family. Um, then there is your eternal family, and these are people with whom you share a common salvation. Um, you share the blood of Jesus and the indwelling Spirit of God. This is your eternal family. The eternal family in Scripture is much more important than the biological family. I'm not taken away from the biological family. I'm just saying that you know, in many ways, biological families were there to teach us about the eternal family. And so the church is to have spiritual children, and spiritual children are the responsibility of the entire Christian community, not just biological parents. So when it talks about us having godly offspring, it's just not talking about a husband and wife. It's talking about the church that is raising up the next generation. So even if you're single, um, and you don't have kids, I'm going to say that there's a lot in here for you today. Um, and if you disagree, well, you're stuck in here now, right? There's really no, no way to get out now. Um, and this is the only week that we're going to be dealing with this particular subject. The next few weeks, I'm going to be talking about work and time management. Um, so you can just bring your self-centered self back next week. Uh, and, you know, it'll be more for you because I know it's all about you all the time. Um, but, uh, but seriously... Um, the next generation of Christians is all of our responsibility, so I don't think you should tune any of this out, okay? Psalm 20, 127, if you have a Bible, uh, Psalm 127, if you have a Bible or you got a new iPad for Christmas, a Kindle or a Nook or any of the other spinoffs, you can just, you know, flip it on now. You've been waiting for this moment since you opened that present, haven't you? Turn it on. Let me see the warm glow of God's Word on your faces, and uh, we'll get into this, all right? By the way, as you're doing that, Lifeway Christian Resources has asked me and a couple of our pastors 
um, to produce a family resource on parenting. It is based on this Psalm, Psalm 127. Uh, it'll be ready to release this summer, but I wanted to go ahead and share with you uh, some of the ideas um, that are behind um, this study. Uh, and so having said that, I am compelled to give one more disclaimer before I begin. And that is whenever you teach on something, um, and especially if you produce a video curriculum to go with it, people assume that you are the expert, or at least they assume that you assume that you are the expert. Um, but I can assure you that neither of those is true in my case. In fact, when Lifeway asked me to do this study, um, I have you know, four kids under the age of 10, my first thought was, I'm really glad you asked me to do it now. Uh, because maybe in 10 years, you would not want me to do the study if my kids turn out to be psychopaths or something like that. Um, plus, I've showed you this picture before of my, you know, my, my, my first kid here. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what that means for the future. Um, <laughs> by the way, that's not even my kid. I just thought that was a great picture. Um, now here's my little man. Uh, that's uh, that's my, my youngest son. But, um, you know, parents, you might identify with me in this. It seems to me, like the longer that I parent, the less confident I become in my parenting abilities. Uh, you know, before I had kids, I had zero kids and four great insights on parenting that I just thought I should share with everybody else. Now I got four kids and zero great insights on parenting. Um, so I think what we'll do is have, um, I think it's safest for me and for you. If we try to let the scripture speak um, and, and, and look at their wisdom as opposed to um, anything that really I had to share with you, um, Psalm 127, so at all of our campuses, if you've found it there yet, West Club, North Durham, Chapel Hill, Cary, um, North Raleigh, Summit in Espanol, Briar Creek, uh, one church in many locations, and uh, soon to come, our Blue Ridge campus uh, that will be launching soon. All of you, Psalm 127. Um, you see the little postscript at the top of Psalm 127? Is, you see that in your Bible? If you don't have this in your Bible, you should throw it out and get a new one, um, get a real Bible. Psalm 127, um, it should say a, a Psalm of Solomon, a Song of Ascents. Um, normally we just skip that. We're going to come back to it because it's actually kind of important. Psalm 127, here's how the Psalm reads. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. By the way, the word children in Hebrew um, is very similar to the word for builder in verse 1. So what you're seeing is a direct correlation between the builders of the city and the children that God is giving to the nation. Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them." All right, look first at the first phrase of verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. In order for a house to endure, any house to endure, God has to be the one who builds it. So that leads me to our first principle. Here we go. Number one, love is not enough. Love is not enough. Many parents have what I would call the Beatles philosophy of parenting. All you need is love. Remember that song? All you need is love. The general idea is if you love people, if you love your kids, hey, everything's going to turn out just fine. That's definitely the accepted wisdom today. But the problem is I know parents who love their kids off the charts, but they are terrible parents. And their kids end up reflecting that. Now, I'm not downplaying love, of course. I'm just telling you there's more to it than that. Yes, you need the heart of God for your kids, but you also need the mind of God. So unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So I got just one question for you based off this insight. Have you honestly taken this seriously? Have you set about to learn God's ways in rearing the, a child or the next generation? And man, if you give me just a minute, I want to talk to you specifically about this. Did you know that most, if not all, most of the passages in the Bible that talk explicitly about parenting... I would say every single one, but there might be one in there I forgot. They're all addressed to men. Do you ever realize this? Uh, Ephesians 6 is a great example. He's talking to men. Um, the whole book of Proverbs, which is the most extensive you know, treatment of parenting, is written from a father to a son. Um, they're all written to men. Of the top 10 books on parenting on Amazon.com right now, eight of them are written by women, however. And of the top five books on parenting on Amazon.com, every single one of them begins in the first sentence or two with a reference to mom. 
if the dad is even mentioned, he's always second. Now, I'm not taking away from the women who think and write about the subject. That's awesome. I'm just saying, do you realize how different it is in our culture and it was in the Bible? In the Bible, you've got God addressing the man saying, this is you. This is your responsibility. How much study have you as a man done about the leading of your children? Now, I don't want to be harsh, especially as we begin the new year. I want to start out positive. But many of you men, listen, I've told you this before, show no initiative in your family. None. Your family's on autopilot. You show initiative in your job. You show initiative in your stocks portfolio. You show initiative in fantasy football. But you know nothing about what God says regarding your most important responsibility. You're like, well, that's my wife's job. She runs the family. I work. I provide for the family. I come home. I watch Sports Center. I unwind, play fantasy football, and entertain myself. If you showed the same initiative in your family that you showed in your job, you'd get fired. You know, I've, again, I've said this before, but most guys feel like they're good dads if they provide food and shelter for their families and don't harm them. <laughs> really? That's the standard? Possums give their offspring food and shelter. Is that really the bar we want to set for manhood? Men, our family is our first responsibility. It is our weightiest job. It is the first thing that we will give an account to, to God for. It is our most important mission field. Number two, our primary responsibility is to teach the next generation the gospel. Our primary responsibility is to teach the next generation the gospel. Children, Solomon says, are a heritage. Some of your translations might say inheritance. A heritage or an inheritance from the Lord. Inheritance is a big word in Hebrew. It was one of their favorite words because it pointed to the eternal kingdom that God was giving to them, the nation, the people of God. The children of this church, listen, are the first ones that we are going to win that will make up the eternal inheritance that God is giving to us, because that's what the inheritance is, right? The inheritance is God's eternal kingdom, and the eternal kingdom consists of people. So children are the first ones that God has given us to reach. Think about it. An inheritance is what you leave behind for future generations, right? You know what an inheritance is? Our children at this church are what God has given us to leave behind, to win future generations. That means that our primary responsibility to our children is to teach them the gospel, to bring them into the inheritance, and then equip them to teach it to others. Parents, the most important task you have is to teach your kids the gospel. Church, the most important task we have, and I guess I don't use that phrase most important lightly. I know exactly what I'm saying. The most important task we have is to teach our kids the gospel. When, 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 when Moses was talking to the nation, not just the parents, the nation of Israel, after giving them the law, he says this, Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach these things diligently to your children. Again, not talking to parents, talking to everybody. Teach them to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you will bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets before your eyes. In other words, wear them like glasses. You will write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The gospel, you see, was to saturate your home. Your home, the home is the best place to teach the kids the gospel. Let me talk specifically to parents for just a minute. Do you know, parents, that we as a church get, at most, about 104 hours a year with your kids? And that's if you come every week and, you know, hardly anybody does that. Right? But at most, we get about 104 hours. You as a parent have, not counting school, you have 8,736 waking hours with your kids compared to our 104. So what we do in here on the weekend is never going to substitute for what you do in the home because it's in the home that you apply the gospel to various situations. It's where you speak it into brokenness and counteract idolatry with it. The, the analogy I've used before with you is, is air war and ground war. If you've ever studied the, you know, warfare, um, when, when air war, um, you know, came on, you know, the advent of air war um, 40, 50 years ago, they first thought that that would just solve, you never, wouldn't need armies anymore, you just send in planes. What they quickly found out is that air war would never really drive out an enemy. Um, after the air war, you know, would kind of loosen up the enemy's defenses, but then you have to send in ground troops because the enemy just burrows into trenches and holes and caves, and they'll come back out after the air war is done, and they'll still, you know, possess the territory. So you do the air war first and then the ground war. What I do in here, what pastors do on the weekend is the equivalent of air war. 
You come in here, you sit down, and I just lob out bombs. That's what I do, right? And it's effective. It helps, but it never is the full sufficient thing. You have got to be the ground war. That's what parents are, where you take the gospel and you begin to apply it to brokenness. You get into the caves of the life and you say, this is how the gospel speaks to this situation. It doesn't matter how many sermons your kid listens to, it's whether you can apply the gospel to the broken parts of their life so that they can grow in it. Do you see Deuteronomy 6? When you lie down, when you walk on the way, in the way, on your doorpost. In other words, just as you do life. I, I will tell you as a parent, very little of the teaching of the gospel for my children happens on schedule. I, 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 sometimes I talk like it does, but I just need to make sure you understand. When I talk about my kids, us having devotions, do not get this image of us all sitting around you know, a little circle, my kids with notebooks out, you know, saying, teach us, Father. Oh, that's a great point. Let me write that down, right? That's not what happens. I mean, it's like, you know, 9% of the time, I'm getting one-word answers back, Jesus. You know, no matter what I, Jesus, because they know that's always the answer. Um, you know, and then like they'll, uh, somebody inevitably passes gas um, during devotions. It's every single time. I'm like, really? You know, um, it, it just didn't happen that way. I wish it happened that way, but it doesn't. Most of the teaching happens along the way. It's while we're throwing football together or while we're cleaning out the garage or while we're riding in the car, right? Because it is in the home that the gospel is best taught, which means that you've got to prioritize the relationships in the home. You've got to be very present there because that's the only place that you're really going to be able to, um, to speak the gospel into those places. In fact, I'll tell you some of the best advice I got as a parent was from another pastor, older pastor, who said this. I've never forgotten this. He said, he said, he said let me tell you, something you should never forget. He said, your kids, JD, don't need a pastor. They need a daddy. He said, because a pastor, you know, his job is to kind of teach family devotions, tell them what's you know, wrong with their lives and they'll not to fix it. He said, but a daddy just shows up at their games and is super excited about them. Their daddy's their biggest fan. Their daddy just goes through life with them. And see, I, I, I haven't forgotten that because I know that pastor is what I am to you, but daddy is what I am to them. And that means I've got to prioritize developing that relationship. It means, fathers, that at the beginning of this year, you need to go ahead and mark off all the significant moments in your kid's life for the coming year and make sure that you have a rearranged your work schedule around those things. Because you're, you, you can find lots of people to replace you in work. Your kid gets one daddy, right? It, 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 for me, that means already at my daughter's ages, I'm trying to date my daughters, um, you know, which means I take them out and I just try to show them what it means to be loved, what it means to be treated. I, I want to show them those things. By the way, men, you cannot start that when they're 15 years old and all dressed golf and all that kind of, because at that point it's weird if you start it. But I want them at 15 years old to be like, oh, my daddy and I have always done this. It's developing that relationship. It, I, I've heard this before, that one of the things that as Americans we, um, we, we tend to think like is we want our kids to be experience rich, meaning that we want them to you know, experience everything. I mean, this extracurricular and this sport and make sure they go to Disney World, make sure they go to the zoo and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, but even if it means they're relationship poor, experienced rich, relationship poor, that's our version of how we get them to success. The Bible would switch that. And it would say, you can make them experience poor. That's not really gonna make that, that significant of a difference, but they need to be relationship rich because who they are is more important than what they do and who they are is determined by their relationship with you than it is by the things that they experience. So you've got to prioritize that relationship because that is the conduit for the gospel. The home is the best place where we're in the best place to apply the gospel. Perhaps more importantly, the home is where kids see the gospel lived out and learn to believe in its power. Listen to this, C.J. Mahaney. Effective teaching involves explaining to our children what they are already observing in our lives by example. Let me just let that sink in for a minute. Effective teaching involves explaining to our children what they are already observing in our lives by example. That is deeply convicting for me. Because that means my kids will learn to believe the gospel less by how well I, are, well I articulate it and more by how they see me treat Veronica. Do they see in my treatment of my wife unconditional love? Do they see the graciousness, the faithfulness, the forgiveness, and the gentleness I tell them that God has for them in the gospel? Because effective teaching is me explaining with my words what they are seeing me demonstrate with my life. What are your kids learning about the gospel from how you treat your spouse? You say, well, my spouse has left. Then you've got a prime opportunity to teach your kids the gospel. 
because you've got a chance to say, this is what God's love is like. This is what forgiveness is like. And by the way, before you despair, because that is enough to make someone despair. Part of this for me, teaching in the gospel, is learning to apologize often. Because you see, the point is not me convincing them that I'm perfect, because I'm not perfect, and they're not perfect. And if they think I'm perfect, then trying to emulate me is just going to crush them because they're never going to be able to live up to a standard that they've set by me that doesn't really exist anyway. So I've determined that more important than them learning to admire my righteousness is learning, them learning to adore my Savior. So I will apologize often trying to tell them daddy is a broken sinner. And daddy, yes, I'm glad you look up to daddy, but you need not to look up to daddy as a hero. You need to see that daddy has a savior and the savior loved him and the savior loves you and the savior fixed daddy is fixing daddy and the savior can rescue you too. So I apologize often. I want them to see weakness. I want them to see that I am broken. And that means sitting them down frequently and saying, I was a jerk to your mom last night and you saw it. And I don't follow that up with, but let me tell you three ways that she deserved that. Or let me tell you the three things she did to me that provoked me. I don't do that. Right? Because I need them to see that I have a Savior, and that's the most important thing about me. And by the way, if your family is a mess, and I know that for many of you that's the case, let me give one word of encouragement to you. Almost to a one, almost to a one, the great families in the Bible were way screwed up. You ever, you ever done a study on the families in the Bible? Your family screwed up? Let that be your Bible study for the month of January, and you will be super encouraged and maybe a little disillusioned. Um, listen to this. Favoritism, incest, betrayal, adultery, severe problems with the in-laws, frequent visitation to prostitutes, um, daughters getting a daddy drunk and sleeping with him, and we're not out of the first half of the book of Genesis yet. The, uh, the father of our faith, Abraham, one time, in order to curry um, favor with a government official, tells the government official that his wife is his sister so that, and that he can sleep with her so that he can win favor with this government official. That's varsity, right? I mean, that's like, that's not like, ooh, that's, you made a little mistake. That's like, you know, Jerry Springer level kind of stuff when you're going into that. Yet God in the midst, why did God choose those kind of families to write his story? I don't know exactly. Here's one theory. I'm pretty confident in this one, is that God is trying to show you that he doesn't bring the gospel out of perfect families. He brings it out of dysfunction, and he writes a more beautiful story through the dysfunction. That's how he brings Jesus out. If God is writing the dysfunction in their stories, he's writing them in yours too. A lot of families have what I've heard called the stock photo family syndrome. You got this you know, image, you've seen at Target of the family, you know, in the little photo, and you're like, oh, that's what a family looks like. And the dad, you know, kid on his shoulders, throwing football, and the mom's, you know, beautiful in the back, and she's got a little picnic. You know, you're like, I just don't, our family doesn't look like that. That's just not the kind of families God usually chooses to work through. God takes broken families, dysfunctional families, and he writes a more beautiful story. So the biggest question you got to ask is this, parents, are you teaching your kids the gospel? Are your kids going to know the gospel by the end of this year? Do they know it now? Here's a question. What do you care most about them knowing? You know, do, do you care more right now about where your kids go to college or where they're going to spend eternity? And I know you would say, oh, clearly where they spend eternity. Yeah, that's what your mouth says. But what do your priorities say right now? Because your mouth can talk all day long about what's important, but it's your priorities that show what's important. And if you prioritize where they get into college over the development of their relationship with God, it doesn't matter what your mouth says. Because what they learn to value is demonstrated by how you set your calendar, not by what your mouth says when you come to church. What's it profit your kids if they gain the whole world? They get into medical school. They go on baseball scholarship to college, and they lose their soul. Are you teaching your kids the gospel? Number three, children are to be raised in the larger community of faith. Children are to be raised in the larger community of faith. To whom is Psalm 127 written? Obviously, the parents. In fact, Jewish practice was to read this after the birth of any child. They would have a little ceremony and read this psalm. But did you see at the beginning where I pointed out a psalm of Solomon, a song of ascents? You know what that means? It means that the song was sung by pilgrims as they approached Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on top of a hill. And so as pilgrims would come yearly for their pilgrimage, when they would get to the bottom of the hill, it was a pretty long one, um, they would begin to sing together the psalms of ascent. There's like five or six of them. And as they were going up the hill, they would sing through these 
And it was, listen to this, the entire community that sang these songs. It wasn't just like, you know, that at that point they all stopped singing the Psalms and like, okay, everybody drop out, just the parents acapella on this verse, uh, and you go into Psalm 127. No, they all sung one, Psalm 127. Why? Because the next generation was the responsibility of all of them. The parenting passages in the Bible are written to communities, not just to parents. Deuteronomy 6, at no point did Moses say, okay, you know, got the law, now a little breakout seminar for the parents. Parents, listen up. No, it's, it's for the whole community. You see, God has two gardens in which he grows a child. Two gardens, they're essential, both of them, the home and the church. Reggie Joyner, in a book I read recently, I actually read it with my small group last um, semester, called Parenting Beyond Your Capacity, points out that a kid needs a second family. Kids need people, he said, beside their parents who can speak into their lives, who reinforce what has been said by their parents. Sometimes they need to confide in a person who is not their parents. And he cites this study, listen to this, teens who had at least two adults from church make a significant investment in their lives were more likely to keep attending church as they got into college. You know, listen, you know the statistics of Churches like ours and the amount of kids that grow up in our church that will not follow God through college. This is one of the differences they point out. Those who had at least five or more adults spend time with them personally were nearly twice as likely to continue on in church. Here's what Joyner says. Children need more than just a family that gives them unconditional acceptance and love. They need a tribe that gives them a sense of belonging and significance. So for us, my, my wife and I, Veronica and I, we have developed strategic relationships with other parents. We have our kids involved in ministries deeply. Why? Because I want student pastors and kids pastors and small group leaders, I want them speaking into my kids' lives. Uh, we've even, you know, tried to come up with several ceremonies throughout their life that can give, it can facilitate these conversations happening. Um, when our, our daughters turned five years old, there was a small group of um, friends that also had daughters about the same age, and they all go out together, and they just sit the girl down, and they talk to her. I know at five years old, they're not getting a whole lot, you know, of, of, of great insight. They're not absorbing at all, but we're trying to say there are other adults who are here as a part of your community speaking into your life and pointing you toward the future. I've heard of dads who, when their son turns 13, take them on a little camping trip with several men from their small group and just this guy and sit around the campfire at night and speak wisdom into their life and explain what it is to be a man of God. It takes more than just the unconditional love of a family. It takes a tribe to give identity. Number four, we must therefore prioritize relationships in the church. We must therefore prioritize relationships in the church. Proverbs 13, 20, listen to this. He that walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. I've heard it explained this way. Listen, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You want to know what you're going to look like in the future? Look at your friends based on Proverbs 13, 20. And let me make this really practical because I know you all nod your heads at that. You parents, listen, your kids, listen, will be a visitor somewhere and they'll find their community somewhere. If your kids find their community at their school or on their athletic team and they are a visitor here, then you can look at their school and their athletic team and get a pretty good picture of what they're going to look like in five years. You say, but I bring them here and you preach to them every week and we think they get a lot out of your sermons. It doesn't say he who listens to wise men will be wise. It says he who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. Listen, I know you might hear self-interest in this, but there is not a drop of it. I would prioritize the community of the people of God, and that is a matter of calendar. That's not a matter of intention, it is a matter of calendar. You've gotta choose what you really value in their lives. You've gotta decide what success is. Is success as a parent getting them into college, going on a basketball scholarship or a football scholarship, or is it becoming men and women who love Jesus and serve the mission? Not that those things are at odds, but you're gonna place value on one of them and you're gonna place priority on that thing. And if I could say this as a, your pastor who loves you intensely, I can tell by many of your choices that you put much more value on your kids getting ahead with the world than you do them going deep with God. And believe me, if I can see that from a distance, your kids hear that loud and clear. You see, when they quit following God in college, that doesn't happen when they're a freshman. It happens when they're in sixth grade by the priorities you set for them, the community you choose for them. 
So don't complain when they're a freshman and they're walking away from God if you prioritized everything but the kingdom of God during their middle school and high school years. Number five, God gives us our kids so that we can prepare them for his mission. God gives us our kids so that we can prepare them for his mission. Like arrows, he says, in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. What's the purpose of an arrow? What's the purpose of an arrow? Jim Elliott, who left a very promising career in the United States to serve as a missionary in South America, um, ended up being martyred on the beaches of Ecuador, said to his parents when he made the decision to drop out of business school and go into missionary work, said this, listen, I do not wonder, mom and dad, that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. But do you remember how the psalmist described children? He said they were as a heritage from the Lord, and that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows for but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, mom and dad, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them, straight at the enemy's hosts. Parents, you got to ask, listen, this is a sober question. Why did God give me these kids? He did not give them to you for you. They are not yours. And I would strongly caution you about ever taking possession of something that belongs to God. They were given to you to prepare for the mission, to prepare them and to launch them out and to accomplish that, you gotta take your hands off of them. Because an arrow will never fly until you release it. You cannot hang on to an arrow and it still continue to function as an arrow. Reggie Joyner in this book points out that we live in a safety obsessed culture. And some of that's good. Right? Don't hear me railing on you know, having your kids wear helmets when they you know, ride their bikes. That's not what I'm talking about. But he says, we live in a safety-obsessed culture. And he says this, listen, quote, it is possible to hold on to our kids so tightly that we forget the ultimate goal of parenting is to let go. Many of us are fine if our children never climb a mountain as long as it guarantees they never get hurt. But what if your children were made for the mountains? The ultimate mission of the family is not to protect your children from all harm, but to mobilize them for the mission of God. And let me give you a little parenting secret, by the way. The way to capture your kids' hearts for God is to engage them in the mission of God early. Um, there was a, uh, in this book, he tells a story of a pastor who, um, a guy in his church, dad, faithful guy, you know, there every week. When his daughter was 16, 15, 16 years old, he began to have some pretty significant problems with them, this guy in the church did. And uh, he said that, um, you know, she, she started to dress the part of a girl that, you know, you don't want your daughter to become. Um, she starts to date a guy that's really bad news. Um, the dad's response to this is to yell at her and make her go to church. So the guy goes to the pastor and he says, look, I just, I'm, I feel like I'm losing control of my daughter. I'm, I'm making her come. I'm doing everything a Christian dad is supposed to do, I think. But she's just going farther and farther away. And the pastor responds this way. I think what your daughter is doing is choosing a better story. We're all designed, you see, to live inside a story. Your daughter was designed to play a role in a story. And the story she has chosen, there's risk, there's adventure and pleasure. She is wanted, she is desired. In your story, she's yelled at, she feels guilty, and she feels unwanted. So she's just choosing a story that's better than the one you're providing. Plus, in the midst of placing her in an awful story, you make her go to church. So you're associating a bad, boring story with God who has a great story. Don't do that anymore. you got to tell a better story. Well, the dad took the message to heart, kind of grasped what he was talking about, figures out that through their church, they're involved in one of these mission projects. Theirs was down in Mexico. There was an orphanage. They were there, and they found out about some needs in the orphanage. It was a $25,000 extension they wanted to make. This dad goes home, has, I think, three kids, sits down his family and says, I want us to take this responsibility on. Gets out a whiteboard and says, how can we be a blessing to this orphanage down in Mexico? He said, you know, it took a little priming, but the kids started, man, they started coming up with ideas. Oh, I could use my Facebook page. I could raise money here. We could go on a trip here. We got to get our passports. He said it was about a three-year process that their family got deeply involved with this orphanage. And the dad said, he said, somehow, subtly, without a lot of fanfare, with no yelling at all, he said about a year or so into this project, he says, my daughter very quietly broke up with her boyfriend. She got very involved in the church. Why? Because she had found a better story. 
In this new story, she had the opportunity to sacrifice. She got to give of herself to accomplish something that would make a lasting impact. She felt wanted and needed in the story. She found a better story, and that did more than yelling at her and bringing her to a place where another guy could yell at her ever could. You see, if you want to capture their hearts, if they were designed to be arrows and you treat them like a piece of furniture that they're supposed to be in your house because they belong to you, not only are you discouraging their development, you are actually shutting down the heart that God created to be his because he created it for the adventure of faith. When there is nothing challenging or adventurous about your style of faith, you begin to drift toward other things that seem more interesting and meaningful. Which is why, listen, I get so passionate and, and usually I'm, I'm yelling at you about you, you know, treating the church like you're a consumer. But you understand that behind that me yelling at you is actually a greater concern parents for your kids. Because if you're the kind that shows up late to church, leaves early, this is all you do, I, it's worse than if you didn't come at all for them. Because you're teaching them that essentially this is what Christianity is, and it's not. Isn't it an adventure where you pour out, you live for something greater than yourself? And that's why I'm saying if you're going to be a part of it, get fully involved. Listen, there's a lot of things we don't do right at our church. But one of the things we try to do is give you opportunities all along the way to get your family involved in mission. Serve RDU projects that we do. We're always like, hey, get your family involved. Um, Route 56, uh, our ministry to fifth and sixth grade um, here, um, takes a mission trip as a family. And we're like, go on the family mission trip. Let your kids be, see this stuff firsthand. Um, our family's adopted a compassion child through the Summit Church, which is somebody overseas that we are engaged with, and we're pouring out um, resources to, and, and my kids are writing them letters. Um, we think about it with our babysitters. Um, our, baby, our babysitter list reads like, like a who's who list of people in our church that have sacrificed for the mission field. Uh, in fact, if you're a crazy college girl who almost dies on the mission field, I can guarantee you I will be calling you up. See, would you come babysit my kids? Why? Because I want to see them. I want them to see that kind of life. I want them to see what the adventure is. In 11th and 12th grade, we provide this four-week thing where they can go overseas with a team and live somewhere overseas. I plan to have my kids lead in the student ministry, Lord willing, when they're in middle school so they can be working with younger kids. When they're in high school, ministering to middle school kids. It's the adventure of it. The principle of preparing arrows and sending them out. Y'all, this applies beyond international missions, but I do want to make sure I bring this point back to that because that's the ultimate vision of this passage, and it's the dream of our church. Are you willing and eager to send out your kids wherever God calls them? Because in order to let the arrow fly, you got to let it go. Y'all, I know so many college students at our church who come from somewhere else, but God calls them to go to the mission field, and their parents forbid it. And every time I hear one of these stories, I say, God, may that never be true of a kid who grows up here. May their parents say, yes, I don't want you to go. I, I will confess that, but you are an arrow that God gave to me, and I will take my hands off of you. Because Summit, God gave us our kids for the Great Commission. Like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior. That's how your kids are to you. And you got to let them go. That's why he gave them to us. That's why he gave them to us. You and I have got to let them go. Our vision is to send out 5,000 from our church. And many of them are right now in the nursery. And that's what we do. Last comment on this before I go to our final point. Blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. Hear this very clearly. Pay very close attention. Do not misinterpret what I'm going to say. There is no right number for size of family that pleases God. There is different circumstances each of us are in. We got to depend on the leadership of the Holy Spirit in this area. So I would never set myself up as your judge. We don't look and smile upon families that are larger or smaller. There's no right number that we feel like that's, I'm not your judge and you should not let anybody else ever judge you on this either, okay? But I do want to say, humbly, but accurately, that we have a culture that increasingly sees children as a burden and as an encumbrance to the American dream. Financially, they are a burden. They're a burden on your travel desires. You can't go to movies at night if you got kids, right? So the wisdom of the day is don't have many kids. If you have any, don't have many because they're going to mess up your life. And I know of a lot of couples who wait years before having kids because they don't want the child to get in the way of their yuppie lifestyle. And I've heard them say, well, I just want to enjoy my wife or my husband for a, a while, for a few dozen years before we, we have kids. <laughs> First, let me deal with that nonsense really quickly, okay? First, I know so much more 
of my wife now after we've had kids than I did before. Because it was just parts of her that just came alive when we had kids that, that weren't there when it was just the two of us. Second, the primary purpose of kids is not to accessorize your life. God gives your kids to you for a mission purpose. If you're a disciple of Jesus, your whole life is not about you. It's about Jesus' mission, and that certainly applies to your family. And you've got to learn to think that way. Look, when, when, when my wife and I, this may be a little too personal, but you know what? Um, I'm going to tell you anyway. The, um, when my wife and I had, um, our, we had three kids, um, and we were deciding if we should have any more. And my quiver felt full. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. At no point in the week was I like, I need more kids. I need another mouth to feed. I need another way to stay up at night. At no point did I ever think that. I was like, my quiver's full. I'm, <laughs> I'm satisfied. But my wife and I also know that having and raising godly children is one of the greatest ministries you can have. So we're like, well, maybe we should have one more for Jesus. And so, um, <laughs> so we set a day to pray and fast, April 27th, 2009. We prayed and fasted the whole day between three options. Stop at three, that was my vote. Um, have another kid uh, or pursue international adoption. At the end of the day of prayer and fasting, we talked right about midnight and we're like, I don't know, what do you feel like? Both of us felt like we might be leaning toward international adoption. Went to bed, woke up the next morning. My wife felt sick. She goes to the bathroom, you know, does that thing and comes back and says, I'm pregnant. Now we were doing all the things you were supposed to do to not get pregnant. And I was like, I have never had a prayer answered that definitively that quickly. <laughs> right? And then so December 25th of 2009, um, Adam, our son, was born, uh, miraculously, right? Born on December 25th. He's a pastor's kid, and he shares a birthday with Jesus. All right? So um, that's, you know, the story. But what I'm trying to, the reason I'm sharing that with you is there's a mentality shift that you've got to have to say, it's not how many kids do I want, it's how many kids, how do I leverage my family for the kingdom of God? In all areas of your life, certainly this one, certainly your family, you've got to think with a missional mindset. Sending Summit Church is not just what we do with our missionaries, it's what we do with our whole lives and certainly with our families. You say, well, I can't have them. I can't have kids. I'm single or maybe we're married and we can't have them. You could consider adoption, fostering. You know how many foster the kids there are in Raleigh-Durham? How awesome would it be for the Summit Church, for that to be our gift to our city, that we take care of every foster kid in the county? What kind of difference would that make in the future? Fostering, maybe it's to be involved in our church's ministry to the next generation. That's, maybe you can be involved praying. Maybe you can get involved in our student ministry, in Awana, which meets on Sunday night, in our kids' ministry. Maybe you can begin to be a mentor to other um, kids in your small group. There's a multiple ways that you take responsibility for this. Number six. This is our last point, and then I got a, a, a really good conclusion, so get ready. God knows you need his help. God knows you need his help. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved. What's the word, church? Everybody say it, come on. What's the word? Sleep. What is the sign in this verse that you are walking with and beloved by God? What is it? Sleep. I can tell some of you are beloved and walking with God right at this very moment, okay? So, <laughs> ah, you say, you say, wait a minute. But if, see, here's the question. If you're sleeping, who's watching over the city? If you're sleeping, who's growing the crops? And the answer is, God is. And the principle that is being taught, watch this, is you do your job. You're faithful with your job. And at the end of the day, you put your head on your pillow knowing that God is the one who watches the city. God is the one who grows the crops, and he never put that burden on you. That principle applies to a lot of different spheres of our life, but I love the fact that he brought it up in the concept of parenting. Why? because we can always tell a new parent by the sleeplessness, can we not? We can tell who you are, you got bags under your eyes, you don't have makeup on, your teeth feel like they got sweaters on them, you're wearing sweatpants for like three months, but we get that, okay? Sleeplessness is the sign of the new parent. But see, there's two, watch this, there's two kinds of sleeplessness. There's the kind of sleeplessness that comes from a late night feeding, right, you can't avoid that. But then there's the sleeplessness that comes from carrying the strain of the family. You see, the principle that is being taught, watch this, 
is that God ultimately is the one who is responsible for the family. And God says, I never counted on you to get everything right. I just want you to do your job and trust that I care more about your kids turning out the way that they're supposed to be than you do. What an awesome thought. Because see, I feel overwhelmed sometimes with my inabilities as a parent, probably you do too. I know moms who feel completely overwhelmed with this. You feel like you're doing such a bad job. God knows you're a sinner. That's not a surprise to him. He says, do your job, do your best. And you trust at the end of the day, you put your head on your pillow and know that I'm the one who watches the city. I'm the one who grows the crops. I'm the one. I'm the daddy. See, that means to a mom sitting here right now, a mom who's like, I don't have a husband here and all that stuff you said about good dads, my kids don't have a dad. God can be a better father than that man could ever be. And God is the father to the fatherless. And God says, I'm building the city. And faith is the greatest thing that you can exercise in parenting and when you trust them to that heavenly parent who gives more grace than your parenting techniques. Elise Fitzpatrick, uh, one of my favorite parenting authors, um, wrote a book called Give Them Grace. And in the book she says, she said, how many Christian parenting books have you read? Listen, how many Christian parenting books have you read that basically say if you do these three things right, your kids are guaranteed to turn out fine? She said, here's the problem with that. God was a perfect father. And a third of the angels rebelled against him, and the only two humans that he created also rebelled against him. So you really feel like you're going to out-technique God? You feel like if God would have gotten that part right, then everything would have been fine? No. It is not good parenting techniques that guarantee the success and the future of the child. She said the real tragedy with that mentality is that it keeps you from the one thing you desperately need as a parent, and that is the mercy of God where you come to the end of the day and you say, I am unable, but you are able. And you say, God, what they need is you. What they need is you're working in their lives and their hearts, and so I'm going to pray for them. And I got a prayer list for my kids that I go through, and I'm like, God, I need this. I can't do this. God is building my city. God is growing my family, right? I, I, I plow the, 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 you know, the, for the crops in the morning, and I, I'm the watchman. But at the end of the day, I say, who's watching the city when the watchman is asleep? Who's growing the crops when the, watch, when the, when the farmer is not there, and the answer is God is. God is. Here's my conclusion. This survey I read showed 85% of Christian parents know that it's their primary responsibility to bring up their kids. That same study showed, however, that two-thirds of them had no idea what that actually meant other than bringing their kids to church. 85% of you, in fact, not that you just heard a message on it, maybe 100% of you realize that Raising your child is your responsibility to know God, but you're like, I'm just not sure what to do beyond bringing them to church. There's a lot of things our church does not do well, but I can tell you this is one that we are passionate about and we are here to help. We've developed, in fact, a family ministry plan that walks with you as a parent. We're not going to be the parent for you, but we're going to walk with you and say this is what it looks like to bring a kid up to know God. When you leave today um, out uh, at every campus, in the lobbies, there is at the, you're going to see representatives from the student ministries and the kids' ministries who would love to give you a copy of that plan um, to sh tell you more about it, just kind of show you how this works at our church. Um, maybe you could talk, if you don't have kids, maybe you could talk to them about being a part of that ministries, those ministries, uh, getting involved there. Um, they've even got a, a little devotional Bible that they'll sell to you essentially at cost called the Gospel Storybook Bible that you could read um, as a devotional with your family. It's a great one. My family's used it. Um, just to disciple your kids. Um, it's a great way to start if you don't have something you're doing. Um, you could get involved in a small group because that's how you become intentional in each other's lives. Uh, there's multiple ways. I would encourage you to talk to one of these representatives as you're leaving. Now, last thing I want to say, and this is me landing the plane, I want to talk one last time to you parents, especially you fathers, because maybe you're here this year against your will. Your wife's New Year's resolution was to get you back in church, and you're here one time. Okay, this is it. Listen. There is nothing that will make you think about your relationship with God more than when you begin to think about your children, right? Because you're responsible for their souls. And God made us men to be protectors and guardians. That's how he made us. And that's a gift he gave to us, which means sometimes we think about the safety of others more than we think about our own safety. Men, you are leading your kids into eternity. Can I ask you, this is going to sound harsh, but I'm just trying to make it as real as I possibly can. Are your kids going to go to hell because of you? Are your kids going to go to hell because of you? Are you leading them to destruction? What are they going to say on judgment day? 
Daddy, I followed you. Daddy, your priorities became mine. Daddy, I followed you into your idolatry. I followed you into your apathy. God never became important to me because he wasn't that important to you. I never read my Bible because I never really saw you reading yours. And now, Daddy, I follow you into hell. There's a lot of reasons to obey God. But I'm telling you, as a dad, I know that one of the things that gets me up in the morning and gets me going on this is I got four little souls that I'm responsible for. And I'm trying to protect them and guard them, and there is no safety as important as eternal safety, safety that is found in the blood of Jesus. And God help me, that's where I want to lead our kids. That's where I want you to lead your kids. That's where I want this church to lead its next generation. See, we get one shot at this. This is, this is it. This is our inheritance. You want to be a better parent? You want to be a better parent? Once you get to know the love of God and the gospel. Because see, here's the secret. The deeper you go with the gospel, the more fruitful you become as a parent. The more this relationship vertically is set, this relationship horizontally takes care of itself. God doesn't love and accept you because you're a perfect parent. He loves and accepts you as a gift. He gives you steadfast love in the gospel. When you come to understand that and you, come and you just receive that and not, you're not trying to earn it anymore, that makes you more steadfast with your kids. The grace of the gospel produces the love for your kids that we're talking about. So I don't want you to get overwhelmed that you're not a perfect parent. God knows that. I want you to cast yourself on the mercy of God and receive his gift righteousness. I want you to be filled with his power because that'll make you 10 times a better parent than learning all the techniques in the world ever could. See, the gospel is the beginning and the end of everything. So come home to him. Why don't you bow your heads if you would. Parents, if you're here, if you're here with a spouse, I'd encourage you to use these moments just to pray for your children. Lean over, grab their hand, your, your, your spouse's hand. Start calling their names out to God right now. Maybe the Holy Spirit is working in your heart about being involved in our ministries here to the next generation. Maybe you're going to take it on as a prayer responsibility. You're going to pray like I do every single day for the children of this church. Maybe you're praying about a wayward child. Why don't you come to the Father? Come to the Father who cares more than you do.